Can you um, can you say this is science, bro? Again, <laughs> this is science, bro. That's science. These are facts. Perfect. That was good. That was, you know what? That was worth it, as they say in the podcasting business. See, I thought you were gonna. I thought it was gonna be me. Okay, how about this? Can you say this is science, bro? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is science, bro. Those scientists better check their hypotenuses, dude. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Okay, can you say? Um, can you say this that's is science, how we have bro? to finally start doing the <laughs> yeah. show? Can you say that's science, bro? Please, yeah, absolutely. That's science, bro. Science is whatever we want it to be. <laughs> All right, can you say this is science, bro? This is science, bro. Oh, that's a good one. Here, I got another one. Uh, can you say um, that's science, bro? That's science, bro. You negligently ruined her iPhone. You have to pay for that. Simple as that. Isn't that rocket science? What is rocket science? Rocket science is when the scientists find out things about space. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that one was a long buildup. What kind All of right, have a, one last one. Okay. From you. Okay. So, um, as you do you want me, do you have any phrase you'd like me to say? Yeah. Say, this is science, bro. This is science, bro. I heard the jury's still out on science. Perfect. All we have to start doing, Andrew, is telling each other what to say and then having audio drops ready to go. It's so simple. It was here all along. And we, episode 2026, we finally figured it out. We, we cracked the, the, um, the, the science of podcasting. Yeah, Mr. White. <laughs> yes, science. Okay, I'm out. I'm I love out. it. I love it. Welcome aboard the Little Red Bandwagon, your twice-weekly podcast about a podcast that might just be too beautiful to live. From the Stick of Butter Studios in New Brighton, Minnesota, I'm Ann Lundholm. Joining me today from the LRB Research Institute for Research in Dallas, Texas, is Meredith All the Way Mayhan. Hi, Meredith. Hey, Ann. And since two lady scientists can't be trusted to podcast alone, oh, wait... We've slipped Mike's <laughs> patriarchal shackles, and there's no one to stop us from talking about whatever we want. <laughs> ha ha. No one tell Mike. Yeah, please. no one tell Mike. I, I thought that it was high time for us to put on our lab coats and talk TBTL and science. And so here we are. Excellent. I can't wait. That's going to be fun. Our experimental design, if I may, for this episode is the same <laughs> as usual. We have some things we must discuss. We've got some TBTL clips that are a blast from the past. We'll do some housekeeping and we'll tell you how you can get involved with the show. So let's get things started with what we must discuss. Uh, Meredith, I have to confess that the idea for this show really came out of a selfish place because TBTL doesn't actually cover like a lot of hard science. I honestly, no. I just wanted to talk with you about working in a STEM field and sort of what drew us to study statistics and what our jobs actually entail. I don't know about you, but if I'm introduced to somebody and they say, say, what do you do? And I say, well, I'm a statistician. Then they're like, 
okay, because nobody actually knows what that means. Oh, try try telling people you're a biostatistician. <laughs> that goes over even better. <laughs> so I just thought it would be fun to to really tell people what that means and then talk about what our experience are as as women who work in a pretty male-dominated field. So I don't know if anybody else is interested to know about this stuff, but I am. I am too. And, you know, I, I started to take uh, a few notes um, of things that I wanted to make sure that I covered, and I wrote like three pages of stuff. <laughs> so clearly, <laughs> I can talk about this for a long time. I'll try to keep it brief. <laughs> okay. Well, so let's start with um, how did you become interested in sciencing? Well, my mother is a nurse. And so I was always kind of interested in anatomy and physiology and medicine. And she, I don't know if she really encouraged it, but she was certainly a sounding board for me. And she was always very like, um, she was always pretty clinical with us. Uh, I understood a lot about, for instance, periods when I was like four, but I didn't understand anything about like how that related to having a baby. She didn't cover that, but I understood that there was like an egg mm. and it would either implant or not and then get fertilized or not, that sort of thing. When I was maybe four or five, I kind of wow. had all that stuff covered. It was really interesting to me. And I was always very interested in childbirth specifically. And I used to pore over these anatomy books. Um, and there, there were some great like National Geographic books that had some amazing pictures, like photographs from inside the womb and, and all different phases of development. And that just like, fascinated me. I loved it. And I would read those and read those and read those over and over and over. And so, you know, I kind of focused on science in school and I went to a special uh, school in sixth grade that was at the zoo, actually. It was focused on biology and zoology and things like that. Uh, it was a public school, Betsy DeVos. Um, <laughs> it was a really fantastic <laughs> education. We did a, we did all the other stuff. We did math and English and writing and that that stuff. But uh, we got to go camping. We got to go mountaineering. We got to build um, like shelters in the snow and stuff like that. So there was some like environmental science that that I was interested in too. And then once I got to college, uh, my undergrad was in pre med. And I really liked pathophysiology and pharmacology. I got to do gross anatomy lab, which is where you're digging around in cadavers. And I thought that was really fascinating. Um, I wanted to be a physician uh, for most of my life. And then I did a job shadow my senior year of college where I followed around a physician in the emergency department um, for a few hours every week. And I would write up, uh, not the cases, but I would write up uh, little papers on each you know, disease process that we, that we saw that day. Uh, and that was my senior project. And what I realized from that experience is that patient care is not for me. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so not for me. I realized that sick people make me really uncomfortable and it's not their fault. It's my fault. It's just something I'm not comfortable with. I realized that I'm um, a lot better behind the scenes of medicine. You know, I, st I, I wanted to still work in medicine, but I was like, well, let me put some pieces together. I took actually two years off after my undergrad and I, I thought about it for quite a while and I was like, you know what? I really did like my stats classes. I really did like my research methods classes. So I started to look around for something that would allow me to work in research that didn't involve getting a PhD or being a Shondatory style lab rat. <laughs> and I found this master's in biostatistics program and I looked into it and I was like, well, you know, I don't, I'm not a stats or a math person necessarily, but 
the computer does all that stuff for you. This is this is really getting into the guts of research, and I really liked that. So I explored it a little bit ahead of time. I talked to the to the professors there, and I, d- I decided it would be a good fit. And so I did that program, and now I have a master's in biostatistics. That is interesting. It sounds like that you were very um, intentional about what you were doing, which is completely different from my experience, because I went through school just sort of being pretty decently good at everything. I didn't especially lean towards science or math or anything. I just sort of did it all competently. And then when I went to college, I told my parents, you know, I think I've decided I'm going to be an English major. And they said, Anne, don't be ridiculous. What are you going to do with an English major? How Are, are you oh, going to be no. a teacher? You need to be practical. Pick a practical major. And I had recently had two different math professors say to me, you know, you should think about being a math major. I think that would be a good fit for you. So I said to my parents, fine, I'll be a math major too. Is that practical enough for you? And that's (laughs) essentially how I got into that. And um, so I went through with a double major and then I was getting towards the end of college and I had absolutely no idea what I would do with this. For all the talk about how math was supposed to be so practical, it's really a very abstract subject. And I was like, right. I, I don't know where to go or what to do. So I'll go to grad school and put the decision off. <laughs> yep. And then I thought, well, what do I go to grad school for? And so English had sort of been drummed out of me as any reasonable possibility. And I couldn't stand the thought of doing math because uh, when you get into the high level math, that's just... That's not for me. I was really good at like yeah. applied math, but once you get into the math with no numbers, the really theoretical stuff, that's pretty rough. And um, we have a friend of the family who was a professor at the University of Minnesota Statistics Department, and he eventually went on to be the chair of grad studies and then the chair of the department. I think he's an assistant dean for the College of Liberal Arts now, but I used to babysit for his kids and everything. And so my mother asked him to call me up and pitch me on the program. And I thought, well, (laughs) that sounds pretty interesting. When he talked about all the different applications that there were for statistics, it's really something that you can use in any number of different fields. And I thought, well, that that sounds good enough for me. And so I, I went for it. And then, you know, two and a half years later, I was got ready to graduate. And I was like, well, now what do I do? So it's like I never had enough intention to actually know what I was going to do with anything. I just sort of took this convenient option that presented itself to me. Well, yeah, that that is really the opposite. Because like, with my degree, there's literally one thing I can do, which is be a biostatistician, right? <laughs> you know, I, I can't necessarily transfer that to banking or government or, you know, there's there's a bunch of different fields, of course, the statisticians work in mine is pretty much fixed to medicine. Now there you can go a different a couple different directions within that. But yeah, mine is quite focused. <laughs> yeah, to the point where at the University of Minnesota, we have a department of statistics and a department of biostatistics. And there's really yes. very little overlap with them. Right, exactly. We we did too at my university. Um, biostatistics differs in that there's a great deal, and I'll get into it a little bit more when I talk about what I do, but there's specific training having to do with study design and analysis methods that are very uh, focused on uh, usually healthcare data analysis. 
Um, so you have to you have to understand how to design clinical trials and and all the different kinds of studies that there are, and there's different statistical considerations for each of those. And that's interesting because I see job postings fairly often for statisticians in hospital settings, and not so much biostatisticians, but specifically statisticians. And I always thought, God, I don't know that I would want to get into healthcare. But I think what I've seen is the more sort of administrative. Uh, positions, yeah, where it, you would be with the business of running the hospital and not so much the business of medicine, which is what you are involved with. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. I don't. I know we've got a few statisticians that we have over the time who have had uh, masters in just statistics, but that's pretty rare. Mm-hmm. Um, I think probably ninety-five percent of our our team is specifically biostatisticians, either masters or PhD level. Well, that's as good a, an opening as any to actually talk about about what you what your job really entails. Yeah, so I work for Henry Ford Health System in Detroit. Um, I used to work in the office. Now I work from home because I'm in Dallas. Um, and I work for a department called Public Health Science. Uh, in short, I guess I just I perform the data analysis for researchers, and those are mostly physicians, and they're the ones who are conducting the studies. Sometimes it's PhDs, sometimes it's nurses, but mostly physicians, residents, and staff physicians. And uh, they do everything from like bench science, which is petri dish stuff or lab rat stuff, to like randomized controlled trials involving interventions on humans. And a lot of the time, it's retrospective epidemiological studies, which means we're going back in our patient databases for specific treatments or diseases, and we're either comparing like cases to controls or comparing mm-hmm. patients who received one kind of treatment to those who received another kind of treatment, like maybe cancer patients. And the things that we're studying are like quality of life, disease resolution or recurrence, survival time, things like that. And so a lot of what I do is saying like, okay, in this very specific subset of cancer patients with this very specific cancer, do ones who get radiation and chemo, do they live longer or have a better quality of life than patients who just got chemo? Um, Now, that's not the most uh, robust kind of study because that's something that the patients and the doctors choose ahead of time before the study. Like, we don't want to randomize people to to treatment necessarily (laughs) when we're talking about life and death. Right, exactly. Um, You will get radiation. You are going to give you a wing and a prayer. We're just going to see what happens to you. Yeah, so there are ethical concerns of why you can't always randomize, and that's why we have a lot of different kinds of studies. It's a practical matter. But I do the analysis for that. Yeah, and that... I always thought it was an interesting um, example that people can understand is that's why it took us so long to definitively say that smoking causes cancer. Because if you're doing Mm -hmm. a cancer study uh, with cigarettes, you can't uh, randomly choose half your people and say, okay, you smoke and we'll see if you get sick. Well, and you smoke for the rest of your life, Yeah, right? I mean, that's another thing is these long-term studies. That's another reason that diet studies are so crazy and hard to do and unreliable. And they're always in the news because mm-hmm. they're always coming up with some crazy thing, but they're usually pretty bad. And it's because they rely on self-report. P- people have to report what they eat all the time. And no one's going to do that accurately. And nobody's going to do that for very long. And no one's going to stick to a dietary change or intervention for a super long time either. So these things are really kind of shots in the dark. They're difficult yep. to study. And then journalists get really excited and you have uh, articles talking about, oh, I don't know, coffee's bad for you. And then the year later, coffee's good for you. And then uh, don't right. ever eat eggs. And and I think that leads to people starting to think that all this is just total bullshit. 
uh, but it's just so hard to be able to actually tell anything from any of it. And uh, the yeah. news media is not very good. I think I think journalists are really hampered by not understanding science very well. Agreed. Agreed. Not we could have a show just about that. <laughs> well, not true. Not no, Phyllis. She's, <laughs> she's the best. Mm-hmm. Um, and I certainly wouldn't. I wouldn't call Andrew and Luke. Uh, journalists but no. they they as we will see later on can can kind of misconstrue studies as well and it's very easy to do mm-hmm. um scientists aren't great at communicating with the public we we are great at communicating with each other um but there's kind of a disconnect when we're talking about and and nobody wants to have a headline that says this may be a thing we don't really know more <laughs> studies are needed <laughs> That's not very exciting. <laughs> That's going to bring those grants rolling in. <laughs> exactly. And as far as the other stuff, I feel like I should study or I should cover the other things that I do. Um, one of the things is that uh, I am sometimes involved with a study from the very beginning, ideally, in designing it. So they come to me and they say, I want to figure out X, Y, and Z. I help them kind of plan that study. I also do a statistical justification, which is a sample size calculation. So how do you know that you have enough patients in your study? And how do you know that you don't have too many? Because you can have too few and you can have too many. And those both have their own pitfalls. And so there's actually some equations that we have. And we need some input from them, from other studies, from a pilot study, for instance, um, that gives us an idea of the effect size that we want to detect, meaning the difference between the two groups, like the magnitude of the difference. And I use that information and I can calculate, okay, you need about you know, 200 patients per group if you're going to want to be able to detect this big of an effect, that sort of thing. And so then we submit that stuff to the IRB, which is the Institutional Review Board. And that's a group of people at the hospital who decide whether the study is well designed enough to continue and whether it's ethical. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. That's a really important part is if they're if they're saying we're going to do sham brain surgery on half these patients, the IRB is going to go, no, <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> That's an unethical thing to do. Um, so they, you know, it's kind of a check on physicians or researchers kind of going buck wild doing whatever crazy thing they feel like they want to do, and that might yield some good results, but not for the people in the control group, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> kind of sucks to be them. So then, right, exactly. Once they get their IRB approved, then they start collecting data. They send it to me. I spend either a lot of time or a ton of time cleaning up that data because no one makes a spreadsheet very well. Um, (laughs) It's usually terrible to awful. Uh, And uh, so then I uh, import that data into a software called SAS, S-A-S, and that's a coding language. And so once the data is imported into SAS, I just can write a bunch of code and I can change the data. I can manipulate it. I can do the analysis that way. We have different procedures. that we all code and uh, it spits out the results. So I don't have to do any of that math really myself. It does all the graphing. Um, it spits out results and I usually put them into tables. I write up a results document and I try to explain the results uh, to each of the tables in a kind of a plain non-jargony way. And I do that because sometimes I'm working with doctors who don't even know what an average is. Mm -hmm. I've had that happen before where they don't know, you know, the basic statistics. And so I have to explain in detail, but not with a lot of technical language, what those results mean, because they are then in charge of communicating that with their journal or their article or their whatever they're writing. Um, And I also help with that. Sometimes I'll help with publication. So that's kind of beginning to end what I do. 
That's really interesting. And that's, that's very sciencey, I must say, Meredith. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is very sciencey. I feel a little, um, not intimidated, but uh, like I'm working at a, a really different uh, level from what you're doing, because what I do is uh, much uh, less specialized, I think. Uh, so I work at the University of Minnesota, which most everybody listens who listens knows by now, but I work in the Department of Energy Management, which is a division of uh, facilities for the university. And we are essentially the utility company for the University of Minnesota. And if the University of Minnesota was a city, it would be the fourth largest city in the state. So it's not a, wow. it's not a small utility grid that we're running. And, uh, and we have two halves to the group. And the first group, uh, the utilities group, it's their job to get all the utilities to the various campus buildings. So your electricity and your steam for heat and your chilled water for cooling, natural gas, and then water potable water, non-potable water. My friend Kathy runs the water and she says, um, uh, water, storm water, and poopy water. And then she says, every little girl's dream. So, <laughs> so that part of the group, they really work on infrastructure. And if there are um, new buildings being built or significant renovations, then they work with the design teams to do all that engineering and make sure all that happens. And then the, the facilities group, um, once the utilities get to the buildings, it's their job to uh, make sure that that's all used in the most energy efficient and cost effective manner. I mean, we want to uh, conserve energy and also keep stu students' tuitions down as much as we possibly can. And so I sit in the middle of all this. I am in neither group. I am in no group and in all groups. I, I am the, <laughs> the unicorn of energy management, and I handle all the data and statistics. So I work a lot with the finance people and um, the utility meters. We have over a thousand utility meters on campus, which is pretty uh, incredible that we process every month. We read them and, and process them and build them out to the different departments. And I work to gather the data and process that data and make sure that it's reasonable. Um, if anybody is mean to me, then I can make their electricity bill go up if I want to. <laughs> Ooh, you're an evil scientist. I know, I have power. <laughs> I also uh, work with the engineers in if they're doing a, a study, a utility study in a building, uh, I will process the data uh, that comes mostly from from the utility meters and let them know how things are going. Or if they do projects, I will analyze the data afterwards and do some comparisons and tell them exactly how much of an effect their energy uh, conservation projects have have had. Um, I also do some true statistical forecasting. We need to have a good idea of, say, how much electricity we're using at any one time on campus, because especially in the summer when it's really hot and it's a big drain on the electrical grid, um, we do uh, run the risk of uh, blowing a gasket is not the right word, but, mm -hmm. you know, having some some problems if the electrical grid gets overloaded. Plus, our utility sure. company actually uh, charge us a demand charge. So the more strain you put on the system, the bigger charge they're going to put on you besides mm -hmm. the actual cost of the electricity. And so I have built some, uh, done the analysis, the regressions and uh, built uh, the algorithms that will allow us to predict the electricity consumption for all uh, 200 buildings on campus down to the hour. 
think, and it involves, yeah, it has a lot to do with weather and time of day and what day of the week it is, and it's all this stuff, and it's actually, it's pretty fun, because when you graph what I predicted versus what actually happened, and they run together, and it's so pretty, I just feel... Oh, I bet that feels good. I know, it feels really good. And and they're always impressed. All the engineers are impressed by that. So <laughs> one thing about engineers is they have a tendency to think that they can do it better if they just do it themselves. Of course. That's an engineer's instinct, isn't it? Indeed it is. But eventually we've gotten to the point where they don't try to second guess me too much. And then I do some outreach things. Like I'm just a general uh, data source. I work sometimes with students who are taking... Uh, engineering classes on campus will be looking to do projects for buildings and I'll work with them to provide them the data or talk to them about how the campus runs or I've spoken to, oh, what was that? It was like a business and conservation group or something and just a a number of things. And then I run a big uh, study, a benchmarking study that we do every other year with a bunch of schools, it's called the Big Ten and Friends Conference. The and friends is like, well, University of Texas from Austin comes and like <laughs> Cornell's in right. it and and um, North Carolina Chapel Hill. So it's about 20, 25 universities who get together and kind of compare notes because uh, a university is a very distinctly different organization from a bank or an office building or or a community center or anything else. It's a, an entire city in one thing. So they, they always get together to talk about um, what they do and how they run their systems. And I gather data from all of them every two years and put together this big analysis so that they can compare um, graphically and numerically exactly how their methods compare to one another. And that's a pretty... Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, that was not my idea to do that. It was a guy at uh, was it Michigan State, I think, had run it for 15 years, and then he retired, and, and all the directors were talking, and they were like, well, what are we going to do with the study? And my director said, oh, Anne can do it. And then he came oh, back great. and said to me, oh, can you do this? And I said, sure. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a ton of work. It Actually, it is a ton of work, and uh, they haven't done it in the most efficient way, and so I'm kind of... Um, trying to restructure some of that. But it's really my job is to be very reactive to the needs of the engineers in my department and give them the data that they need to help them make the decisions on how to run the campus as as best we can. Mm-hmm. So not very close to what you do. Not at all, but that's so interesting. And you know, you've 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 done some data analysis for us. You took a, a ton of our uh, listenership statistics, and you crunched all that stuff into a really awesome document that made it so easy to understand. And you pointed out the interesting highlights, and that—that's just—I was just so impressed with that. And that seems to be the kind of thing that you must do all the time. Yes. Yep. And um, and that was a little diff- difficult because I didn't really know what we were looking for, and um, and that is one of the hardest things about, say, designing studies is kind of mm-hmm. figuring out the questions to ask sometimes. And so right. a, a lot of what I d- was doing with that particular data was just sort of um, throwing the spaghetti at the wall and saying, well, is this interesting? Is this interesting? Does, does this look like something that would be good to know? And then hopefully as we do it down the road, we'll come up with some some better ideas of what will help us be a better show and make a better product for the listeners. Because believe it or not, we do think about that. 
We do. We do think about it a lot. Mm -hmm. And that's interesting you say that because um, the throwing spaghetti at the wall technique is something that is very much frowned upon in medicine. I don't think there's any ethical issue doing it with podcast data. But with uh, medicine, if you have a study and you just say, I'm going to collect all this stuff, I'm going to compare everything to everything. uh, That's not going to that's not a great way to design a study because, you know, ultimately you're going to find something. Yes. Uh, it may not mean anything. So we really try to, to focus people and say you need to, so that's part of my study planning when I am involved from the beginning. I say, you know, we've, we've got the analyses planned out. We have our endpoints mapped out. We have our predictors mapped out. And that's what we're going to do. And we have to stick to that. Otherwise, you're just fishing. Right. And, and that's actually, um, I was saying that on the recap that you weren't on a couple of weeks ago when we talked about that UFO book that those mm-hmm. people put together that had all the the data uh, in it. And what I ha- was trying to say in that very inelegantly is, was that if you just stir your data around long enough, you're going to find something, which is essentially what they were doing with all of that stuff. But when I really don't know what I'm looking for in all this podcast stuff, I'm not I'm just poking my finger in to see. Well, that's fine. Yeah. Yeah. The 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 point with, I, you know, the medical world's a little higher stakes mm-hmm. and you don't want to, for, for instance, say, oh, it looks like this drug causes an increase in Alzheimer's when that's not what you were looking for. You haven't thought about that question and you haven't designed your study to address that question. Um, if you just throw that out there, you know, you could be causing some problems. <laughs> So you have to really consider that ahead of time and and carefully plan those things. Yes, indeed. So let's talk about uh, being a lady as a, a statistician, a biostatistician. Uh, I would assume that there are relatively few female biostatisticians as there are female statisticians. You know, I I only have my department to go off of. Uh, and I've been exposed to a few others, like in grad school. Um, but in my department, it's pretty 50-50. Wow. Um, I, I think I'm really, really lucky that my department has a lot of women in leadership positions. The hospital does in general. Our CEO was a woman until very, very recently when she retired. She was terrific. But, you know, my direct boss is a woman and, and the director of research is a woman. Um, and I think I haven't actually counted it out, but I'm pretty sure that even PhD and master's half and half are women. Um, so I feel really lucky in that regard. I have a lot of support and I don't really feel like I, I face overt sexism from the leadership of my department or my hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, my male coworkers, I've always been respectful. I've never felt talked down to by them. Um, and there's a really good supportive attitude about like work-life balance. And I don't say that because only women have to deal with that. Clearly, uh, several of the men uh, in my department are fathers and everyone's allowed a great deal of leeway when it comes to family needs. Like we can work from home, obviously. We have a lot of uh, flexibility in our schedules and they do everything they can to let people take the most parental leave. And, you know, paternal leave is is encouraged. Uh, and they will even let us borrow time under the table. Don't tell anybody <laughs> if we need to. Um, like I got married like a month after I started and I had zero time off and my boss was just like, oh, go, you know, take a few days off. And, you know, once you earn it, you'll just take those days, you know. Right. So she let me just borrow some time. It, they're super nice about that stuff. They, they don't pay us any money. So it's these sort of things that keep people there. Mm-hmm. And we've had people who have worked there their entire careers. Um, most people are there for ten, at least 10 years. So um, it's not the money that we stay for. It's the other stuff. Um, on the other hand, my customers <laughs> are doctors. 
And they can be excessively terrible, but most of them are great. But there are certainly instances uh, where I run into problems. Mostly what it is is they assume that I'm not the actual statistician and I'm just there to perhaps clean up their data before they send it to the real guy Uh to analyze it. And it it hurts. And it's like, did you not see the biostatistician level three under my name in my email signature? What do you think I do? Mm -hmm. You know, um, there's also a documented publication bias and uh, authorship is a big issue. Uh, Women are granted authorship a lot less frequently than men. I have sources to back that up. And and for me, particularly, production uh, doesn't matter to me exactly. It matters for PhDs. So part of their annual review uh, is based on how many uh, authorship credits they get on papers, on journal articles. You can Google Scholar my name and find a bunch of publications that I've been credited on, but that's probably, I don't know, 5% of the projects that I do. And it's totally up to, yeah, it's totally up to the, to the, to the research team as to whether or not they're going to grant me authorship. It costs them nothing. There's nothing, nothing that they have to do other than let me review their paper. I don't want my name on something I haven't reviewed. That has happened a few times. There's some papers out there that I did not know I was an author on and they were published anyway, Mm. (laughs) which is scary because, um, it's easy to misconstrue results. And if I'm not able to review them, I don't want my name on it, you know? Right, right. But uh, it's it's documented fact that women are granted authorship less frequently than men. So I'm sure that that comes into it, although it doesn't hurt my bottom line. You know, <laughs> nobody is counting my publications every year and, and including it in my annual review. If I was a PhD, that'd be a different story. Yeah. Um, you, you just put something into my head that I had forgotten all about when you said that people assume that you're not actually the the statistician. Um, mm-hmm. So this big conference, the Big Ten and Friends Utility Conference, because I was involved in uh, collecting their data and we started sending out emails pretty early to make sure that we could get all their data, uh, a number of people started sending me emails for admin help. Like they thought that I was the administrative <laughs> assistant and it was all like, mm-hmm. uh, how do I get the group rate for the hotel? And can you tell me how I can get to the conference? And I was like, no, I cannot. Oh, Just boy. because I'm a woman and I'm sending you emails does not mean that I am the person who is in charge of the logistics for this thing. And it, I probably right. had mm, seven or eight people try some variation, uh, despite the fact that, as you say, my title is right there, and I've been asking them yeah. for for technical information for the past couple of months. They still somehow thought that I would be the go-to person. And it's not like I was the only person sending emails either. There uh, were a couple of my uh, male coworkers who were also sending emails out, but they did not ask Ooh. them for any of that. Ooh. Yeah, I would, I would say that uh, similar to you, in terms of my daily operations, I feel pretty respected. And my department is heavily men. I think I've said this before mm-hmm. on the show, but we have 100 and, about 135 people all told in our department, including like electricians and plumbers and um, all the skilled trades people. And there are eight women with two admins, mm-hmm. four lady engineers, a lady electrician, and me. So wow. it's, yeah, it's an overwhelmingly male environment. And actually, some of like the trades guys, the plumbers or the electricians, they're, they're sort of charmingly 
apt to call me sweetheart or something. And and mm. I don't really mind that. They're dinosaurs from a from a bygone sure. era. But in terms of my work, I, I'm treated with a lot of respect. But I will say that there are things that I never noticed as a young woman that I've been noticing a lot more about the sort of pervasive casual sexism of the workplace. Because a lot of these engineers, the older guys, they've really have not worked with women very much and they've grown up in that kind of environment where women were less valued. So for instance, um, my department director probably about a year ago did a series of lunch meetings, we'll call them for the whole department. So there were like eight different sessions and you could sign up and come and have pizza. And then he would talk about the department and what we were doing and where the direction was and then ask people for their feedback and, I think one question he asked was, what, what is the thing that makes it hardest for you to do your, your job? It's kind of like a talking and listening session. And so I signed up for one of those. It was like me and 15 dudes, of course. And <laughs> as he's about to start, he says, oh, I, I, I need somebody to take notes for me so I can remember what we talked about. And he looks right at me and he says, Anne. And I said, what? Because I'm the woman, I have to be the secretary. And all the guys started laughing. And then he took his own damn notes. But after that, I was talking to one of my friends, one of our um, administrative assistants, who is a woman. And I told her this and she said, oh, my God, he did the exact same thing to me in the session that I went to. I said, what did you do? And she said, well, I took the notes. No, don't take the notes. (laughs) Boy. And stuff like that is so little and so stupid. But it it is one of those things that it. It's just the small pinpricks that come from all sides, yeah. from people that just just don't understand yet, who use sort of casually sexist language. That's what I, and I've called people out on that. I swear, you know that thing that Mike says about how men are kind of crazy when they're in their 20s and women have to mm-hmm. kind of hold the thing down. And then when women get to their 40s, they go crazy and the men have to be. I think it's <laughs> happening to me because I am so less willing to put up with this sort of gendered language and the subtle put downs. I'm just I'm ready. I'm ready to just fly right off at the handle for any of this. <laughs> So I think it's safe to to say that it's men's fault that we start to go bonkers by the time we're in our 40s because we have had to deal with them for 40 years. That's true. I do. I think and I wonder how much worse it is for people. I mean, I'm just me. I'm not married. I don't have kids. Um, I, I have relatively little to put up with, so to speak. And yet I am so tired of being the person that makes everything okay for everybody else. In, in mm-hmm. life and at work, you know, to be the person who's helpful and the person who takes care of things and the person who steps up and says, I'll get this done. I'm just done with it. I'm sick of it. And, yeah. uh, and, and I've done that my whole life and I, I ain't doing it anymore. And I think I feel crazy. <laughs> That's not crazy. And my male, not crazy at all. my male colleagues reap benefit of this. <laughs> right. Well, say no more. Yes. Don't let them do it anymore. That that goes for all of us, all of us ladies mm-hmm. listening. It's nice to do things for people, but you got to take care of yourself too, sisters. Yeah. Don't let yourself get taken advantage of. Yep. Because they'll, they'll <laughs> walk all over you if you let them. So why don't we get into some of these clips? 
Yes. As usual, I want to thank the archivists before we begin. Uh, the people who provided clips this week are friends, Sarah Settlemeyer, uh, somebody who goes by the initials WK. It's very mysterious. Uh, Linda Hill, mm. Bob Stein, and then you, Meredith, you archived Me. one of these clips. I did. I remember doing it, too. It was a fun one. <laughs> yep. And in fact, that is the very first clip that we're going to go to. This comes from uh, December of 2011. And Luke and Jen are talking about a study that came out of Canada that has to do with drinking and sex. So let's roll that clip and then come back and talk about it. We, uh, we've we got a, one more segment we want to bring you here uh, before we get to our letters. And it's... Um, That's not news. It's that not news. I saw this being tweeted around today. Planned Parenthood tweeted it. Was it actually a study? It, was, it must yeah. have been a report no. from someone. Yeah, it's a report from a study. The Time headline... Just prepare yourself because it's going to blow your mind. Okay. The Time headline. Drinking encourages unsafe sex. Amazing. Somebody studied that, huh? Yeah. They wanted to just be sure, I guess. Hundreds of years of anecdotal evidence mm -hmm. that every single person could tell about. How about just even a person, even a person who's never been drunk and is a virgin, mm -hmm. wouldn't you say that that person, mm -hmm. if they were over a certain age, just because they'd be like a logical, rational human, they'd say, yeah, I bet the likelihood of doing something kind of stupid probably goes up. That's the what more they found out. That's really, that's what they found that's out. That's what they found out. Science confirms it. They did this test where they took all these people and assigned them to drink or not drink and then probed them about their willingness to have sex without a condom. The more people drank, researchers found the worse their decisions. Did the researchers also find that, like, they were totally best friends? <laughs> no, like, I mean it. Like, we need to hang because we are like, I, we get each other. I mean, they yeah. just got people drunk and asked them if they were more likely to bone without a condom. Yeah, and that's exactly what they did. And, and, and the people, as they got more drunk, were like, well, maybe. Yeah, they got more and more willing to as the more they drank. So, Dude, does it does it list the name of the research outfit that did this? Because I feel like they might need to they might need to have uh, their their funding stripped. Well, they're in Canada, mm. Jurgen Rem. Because it just seems like it just seems like um, whoever approved that, if that was publicly funded, how I mean, of all the things that really need studying, there are a lot of things. How did you get that one funded? Well, this was their result. This they've released a statement. This helps explain why people often show this behavior despite better knowledge. Alcohol <laughs> is influencing their decision process. So there you go. It just really feels to me like um like the Canadian government needs to look at this look at this research from and at the very least get some of them laid or drunk. Because they sound like maybe they're just maybe they've just been like cooped up in a world of science. And studying for all these years, like they were like really smart in college. All, all of our listeners are smart, so I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that. But like maybe somehow they just ended up with a research team of people in their early 30s who'd never actually had a drink, never actually like made out with anyone. Never been around anyone drinking. Right. And they were like, well, according to our surveys, sometimes when people – maybe it was – is it the Stephen Urkel <laughs> Research Laboratory for Research somewhere in Canada? Oh, I just – I can't believe this was a headline. Well, it's not news. I mean, you know what, though? That's not news. That's a good point. Okay, so these people, 
uh, it's silly that they studied it, but it's even more silly that the headline was it was reposted around the world and that the research was sort of that that the media was covering this as if they were breaking some kind of news anywhere. Right. Well, there because the whole reason that like Planned Parenthood and all these people got involved in it because the researchers said drinking should now be listed as one of the um, you know causal issues for HIV. Right. And so I just it, it's just astounding to me that anyone thinks any of this could be considered news. The one thing I saw that Planned Parenthood was saying was, if you're going to go out drinking, bring birth control with you or sexual, you know, bring bring a condom, bring stuff right. because you, and that seems like useful advice. Like that's kind of practical. Mm-hmm. Like I don't think you needed the study for that. I don't think you needed the study for that either. <laughs> but at least there's. But for the people that were just citing it as like new research finds, I mean that's just that's right. not it's just not news, right. you guys. That's not news. All right, so I would be willing to donate some money for a Steve Urkel Research Center for Research. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. I love that they get the that's not news sounder out Mm -hmm. for this. Um, So drinking encourages unsafe sex. Uh, Are are Jen and Luke in the right to be so amazed that anybody could think that this is something that needed a study? Well, there's a couple things to point out. The first is that this is a Mm meta-analysis, and this is a learning opportunity. If you don't know what a meta-analysis is, it's where they combine the results of several different studies. And this is actually the strongest form of evidence that we have, um, because it eliminates a lot of publication bias. Every study is biased in multiple ways, and the only way to to minimize that is to pool them all together. Uh, And hopefully some of those biases disappear, cancel each other out, fade away in the noise, that sort of thing. So it, it it's valuable just on that fact. Um, the other point to make, and, and I don't think they really focused on this enough, is that the idea was to see what effect alcohol has on the incidence of HIV and STIs. Mm-hmm. And that was the point. And they conclude that, I mean, it's 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 kind of obvious, but... That's the thing about science is we can't just go around saying things that seem obvious. We have to have research to support (laughs) our assertions. Well, you can if you're Luke. Well, right. (laughs) Exactly. That's all he does. (laughs) Yeah, I I thought that um, the whole point of research like this is to quantify things, right? So Mm -hmm. we do all kind of feel that that makes sense, that you drink and your inhibitions are lowered and you make worse choices, perhaps, or riskier choices with regard to sex. But but we don't know exactly how risky or how much riskier or how much more likely we are to make those kinds of choices. And there Mm -hmm. were some numbers in this study that I don't think they mentioned in the clip, right? Um, no, I don't think didn't so. Didn't they say that for every, oh, whatever, uh, 0.01, your blood alcohol level increased, um, you had a 5% increase in the chance of making a risky decision? Or I'm not stating that very well, but that's essentially how it turned out. No, you're out. right. Yeah. So that was clearly the result of a regression analysis. Um, they actually did adjust it for publication bias, which is a technique. Uh, we do some meta-analysis in my department. I haven't done any. It's a very kind of complicated way to do analysis. So I'm not exactly sure how you adjust for publication bias, but they dropped down the estimate to 2.9%. So every 0.01 uh, milligram per milliliter increase in blood alcohol led to 2.9% increased risk of making the choice to not use a condom. That's what they said. Right. And so you think, well, 
whatever, 2.9%. So what? Well, if uh, the legal uh, limit for driving is, what, 0.08, then mm-hmm. that's actually kind of a lot. That's like one, sort of one drink, right? Yeah. Like 0.1 might be a drink or a little bit more than one drink. So for people who are binge drinking, this could, this really adds up to significant risk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is another one of those uh, of things where I, I don't know, I guess the, the article itself wasn't that bad that I read about it, but maybe it's all in the, the lack of understanding that Luke and Jen bring to it. Right. Yeah, and I mean, there's there's some nuance, and it's not like an earth-shattering conclusion, but it is interesting to quantify how big of a public health risk is this? Mm-hmm. How much do we need to, to like warn people that uh, they need to, for instance, bring condoms with them if they're going to go out and drink a ton? <laughs> I thought it was quite funny that um, Luke's conclusion is that probably these scientists need to get drunk and get laid. <laughs> Because clearly they've never done either of these things. They think this needs to be studied. (laughs) Well, you know, it's sort of a safe assumption if you're talking about uh, medical researchers. But uh, as one myself, I'm going to take umbrage with that statement. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) All right. Our next clip is from March of 2013. And this clip revolves around a man in the UK who was born with his bladder outside of his body, which is interesting enough, but he also doesn't have a penis. So let's take a listen to uh, Luke and Andrew and Andy Haynes and Lee Lefevre talk about this. The other story we have in Crotch News uh, today is um, uh, the, uh, the son of the uh, United Kingdom, one of the leading tabloids there, reports that a guy who goes just by the name of Andrew, uh, who's from uh, Staley Bridge in Manchester, mm-hmm. um, has uh, uh, is excited to announce to the newspaper that uh, although he was born without a penis, he was born with something called an ectopic bladder, which means your bladder forms on the outside of your body. So strike one, love life. <laughs> Um, and I guess because of that, it, he also, his body never developed a penis. Because his body knew he wouldn't need one. <laughs> exactly. His body said, yeah, that's just, that's only going to add to your problems. So he had a, and uh, he did, he was born with testicles, but no penis. Uh, he, when he was a young person, successfully put his bladder back inside his body. But he's gone through life without having a penis. Interestingly enough, and this is going to be depressing to a lot of our listeners out there, he says that he was still able to bed over 100 women in his life because he had a whole system. He said he would he would take uh, LSD <laughs> and then he would meet these women. He said sometimes uh, they would be one-night stands, sometimes they'd be long-term relationships, but he would do all this LSD and then he would get them into bed, but then he would tell them, hey, I can't, we can't have sex because... I'm on all this LSD and that's not going to work down there. The equipment is not going to work. And apparently these women bought it and were like fine with that. So by betting, he didn't have actual sex, but he had no problem apparently making friends with ladies and had this whole system that was kind of working for him. But then he was reading in the paper. The Sun had covered a story some months previous of a man named Muhammad Abad who had a similar kind of problem. He didn't have a penis, and the doctors took the skin off of his arm, took a giant section of arm skin, 
and turned it into a penis-like thing and put it on this guy. And when the first guy, the guy who used the LSD to bet all the women, when he saw the story, he realized he wasn't the only person with this problem, and he is now going to have his own arm penis made. Yay. <laughs> yeah. Wow. It will be outfitted with a pump. Really? So as to, yeah, so as to be able to, uh, you oh, know, function. Yeah. He'll be he'll be able to urinate with it. I See, I got to remember stories like this when I even have a pretty bad day. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that honestly put the rest of my day into perspective. I know. You're worried because you don't have enough stuff for your yeah, show. like, tonight. whatever. No penis, but also outside bladder? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. I don't really understand what, where, what role the LSD plays. Like, I know. That seems like, like it would make it I work. I think that was just him wanting to do LSD. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's, he's already lying about the stuff. Like, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> It just going to be hard to keep your shit together too, yeah. if you were tripping. Yeah. I don't have a penis, but I do have a dragon. Yeah. <laughs> Is that bladder on the outside of your body? No, that's just the acid that I ate. Yeah. Just ignore it. Um, all right. Well, that's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's a crotch. horrible joke that didn't make a lot of sense. I like it, though, that he's he thinks... <laughs> yes. That he's like on the ass and he's like telling the person yeah. they're hallucinating that the, the, he doesn't right. have a Well, piss. he seems like he could sell anything, so why not? <laughs> I thought that maybe the bladder was still outside and in order to get heart, they formed that into a penis, but no. it had to pee really bad before it would actually do anything. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Oh, God. Mm. That would be um, upsetting. What else is on the rundown? <laughs> That's pretty much uh, what we got for today. There should be a dating service for women who don't have vaginas and guys that don't have penises. <laughs> That's been Crotch News today. Okay. Yeah. How is it possible to bed anyone if you don't have a penis? <laughs> I was thinking that that was a very sort of careful use of the term bed rather than to say have <laughs> sex with. I mean, I don't know how exactly we're quantifying that all. And and why, I was wondering, does he even want, I mean, does can he get sexual pleasure if he doesn't have a penis? I don't know, but you know how much of a man's ego is tied up in the number of women he's bedded. <laughs> right. So even a guy right. who physically is unable to have intercourse is boasting about how many <laughs> women he's been with. And and I don't mean to be cavalier about it. I just, I'm really fascinated by that. I actually did a little research on this guy. There are a lot of Google hits. He had a TV show. I forget exactly what it was called. It was like The Man with No Penis or something where they actually followed him for a year as he lived his life and I think prepped for this particular surgery. He's actually a really normal looking guy. I don't know why I expected mm -hmm. him to be sort of weird, but, you know, kind of averagely handsome and just seemed like a dude who happens to yeah. not have a penis and... His birth defects were just concentrated around his junk area. Mm -hmm. Everything mm -hmm. else is fine. But I thought this whole idea of um, using the arm skin to fashion a member for him was really interesting. And also in one of the articles I read, they showed – it was actually the post-surgery, I think. They, they showed exactly oh. how much skin they took out of his arm. And it's just this long sort of rectangular strip. God, the things that medicine can do these days. I know. <laughs> Thanks to us. Yep. <laughs> now, I thought this was like a surprisingly bro-y chat. I don't know if it was because Andy and Lee were there. 
if it's because we're talking about penises and that makes us broier than usual, but <laughs> probably all of the above. Yeah, but um, the thing that Luke said about this guy claiming to have, again, quote, bedded over 100 women and, and Luke saying that this might be depressing for some listeners, you know, the guys who actually have penises who can't get 100 women. Oh, do you think it's the penises that we're after? <laughs> Come on. Come on, guys. It's the bank accounts. Yeah. <laughs> Clearly. Uh, you know, I I think it was, you know, four men in a room talking about penises. How could that not be bro-y? Right. I, I would have taken a slightly more, I think, clinical approach to talking about this. But if they want to use it as an occasion to remind themselves that their lives aren't so bad because they have right. a, a fully functioning set of equipment, then I guess that's what they're going to do. It's not like they were going to um, approach it from a scientific perspective, I suppose. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> uh, when I, what this reminded me of is the first time I realized all of the amazing urologic technology we have to, to allow men who have no business with boners to have boners, uh -huh. things like uh, penile implants, that is a thing, you can get basically a rod inserted in your penis so that it's kind of erect all the time, even though it's not. And it's not. I always thought that um, penile implants were strictly because you wanted something bigger. Uh, they use them a lot on, on men who've become impotent wow. for one reason or the other. Yeah. Yeah. And there's pumps and there's, you know, injections and there's all sorts of stuff. And it's amazing that we can do essentially nothing for female sexual dysfunction, but we have a slew of <laughs> options for men. Well, I just I singing. did just watch uh, this, I guess we would call it a rom-com called Hysteria, which was a period romantic comedy. Uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal was in it. And who was the guy? I can't remember. And um, it was... An imagining, we'll put it that way, of the guy who invented the first vibrator. And his practice uh -huh. as a doctor uh, was to have woman, women come in and he gave them what they referred to as a vulva massage. And that <laughs> <laughs> cured all their ailments. So that's about as far as we've gotten <laughs> with women's sexual dysfunction. Is that all we have to do to cure all of our ailments? Yep. Gosh, why didn't anyone tell me that? <laughs> throw away all these medications mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you know when you said that the the penile implant will sort of keep them at half mast so to speak all mm -hmm. the time uh one of the things that i read about in the follow-up to this guy was that once so he had the surgery and then they had to do a follow-up where they quote-unquote activated the device, <laughs> and they said that he he was going to have a two week erection from that while it, I don't know, booted up or whatever. No. So that's a thing. Ay ay ay. Yep. And he now this these um I read these articles. I think they were from the beginning of this year or the end of last year. So he's forty four now, and he's had the surgery. And in the meantime, he met a lady. Uh, who is his fiance, and she doesn't have a problem with 
uh, any of his physical limitations, and um, he's going to have a good life. So I was actually kind of happy. Mm. He talked a lot more about the the psychological uh, effects of being a man without a penis. And um, one mm. of the things that the guys were talking about in this was the sort of the role of LSD, like why he took all the drugs <laughs> right. and stuff and then right. claimed that um, that the drugs were the reason that he was unable to do anything. But he talked a lot about um, depression, like horrible depression and getting into drugs and alcohol as a way to deal with that. So I don't know Aww. that the LSD was necessarily like a sex aid. It was a convenient excuse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and and really a, a coping mechanism. And he talked about kind of wanting to commit suicide for a, a while. So Aww. I know I'm I'm glad that it's working out for him. Yeah. So let's move on to clip number three. Personally, the clip that I find the grossest from October of 2015. And the guys come across an article about a scientist who believes that you don't need to take a shower. Listener Amelia Ann uh, put on the, uh, the Facebook page for the show a link to this story from Vice, which is quite fascinating to me, a story of a guy named David Whitlock. David Whitlock has not showered for 12 years. This apparently started, according to this piece in Vice, um, written by Johannes Hausen. This guy, David Whitlock, was on a date, and the person on the date with him asked, why does my horse roll around in its own filth all day? And that apparently spurred this guy, David Whitlock, on to start looking into this, and what he found out was that horses rub living bacteria into their skin to protect the flora living there. So I guess the takeaway from that is that horses, they, because they don't bathe a lot, their skin kind of has its whole own ecosystem going and rolling around in filth. It's sort of like a probiotic for their skin funk mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. I think what that means. Now I had said, do you remember uh, when we talked about you on the show, I said at some point your body is going to reach a stasis. I couldn't have been more right. It turns out. Right. Well, this guy is also using though. He, he's created, he's, he's taken this idea that he got um, while talking about horses on a date, by the way, the article does not mention this, but it was also the last date he ever went on. I know, like, I just yeah, find this, yeah. I find this to be an interesting, like, I, I like to imagine what this date was like, where this guy, David right. Whitlock, was sitting across from this person. I don't know if it was a man or a woman, but this person said, you know, my horse, also, is David Whitlock British? He looks British to me. I don't even he know what that means. He looks very British, yeah. So, um, I imagine the other person saying, um, why, why do you think my horse has been rub rubbing in filth? Like, was that that person's way of trying to get out of the date with David Whitlock? Like, right. was this How did a the conversation get was there? Was the date going really well or really badly at this point when this came up? Right, right, right. No, I think that's a that's a really that is a really good question. And whether or not, and then he said, "Oh, okay, hold on one second. Uh, you're giving me an idea for a compound I can make that will uh, kind of make my skin reenact what's going on with horses. And then maybe if I do this right, I'll never have to shower again. And then that is that is definitely when uh, both parties called the Uber individually yeah. and went their own ways. But yeah, so he created a. Um, I'm on the website now. It's a, a product called Mother 
Dirt is actually the actual kind of brand name that he's given it. But they're it's also a, opening up for the heart cover band at the <laughs> casino next week. Uh, so he's created this spray that breaks down the ammonia on your skin. And it's the ammonia that makes human sweat stink in the first place, it says. So, oh, his company is called AO Biome. So that was his first step. It's like, okay, well, it's not bad to have this stuff going on in your skin. But really, it's the it's the smell that society it looks down on so he took care of that he says he doesn't he doesn't smell he says that you can use the product even if you do shower you don't have to use this product only if you don't want to shower like you can shower and then still use the product which raises the question why would you want to do that well he says now after all these years that he doesn't want to waste the time to shower he feels like his his skin and his body has reached again kind of an equilibrium and um, and so he, you know, if he were to take a shower, he would have washed all of this good bacteria off of his body, and he'd have to reapply his spray to his entire body. And who has time for that? I think he right. says like um, he did the math, uh, and he claims that um, it's uh, where is it in his article? What the amount of uh, the amount of? Oh, he says uh, I'm saving ten to fifteen minutes a day, and that adds up to over twelve yeah. years. So he's he claims he's adding twelve years to his life by not showering. You know why that doesn't ever work for me? I read that line too, and I was like, I waste I waste all of my life, and it's not just in the shower. Like, I, first of all, I'm taking a shower half the time for entertainment. Sorry, California. I really have, by the way, been much more. I, we talk about how much I love to shower, but I really have done away with my habit of showering more than more than once a day i don't do that i do take the drought seriously for what it's worth um but uh he's like oh yeah think about all the time i've saved it's like what like i could i mean if that's for him that's great that means he's out there you know sciencing it up and and figuring out more chemistry things but like for me it's kind of like uh i could add a lot more time to my life by not watching like the same cartoon i've seen a hundred times or uh not playing so much minecraft or even football you know what i mean like yeah. that's not a huge thing in my life right i mean if if this guy is really some sort of a um thomas edison type where he's just working 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 thomas edison famously i think would sleep like 15 minutes at a at a at a time so he could just keep, like he'd be in his in his uh, whatever lab or his his study area and he'd like put his head down on the table and he'd sleep for 15 minutes and then he'd wake up and like start inventing again like if that was your life then saving 15 minutes a day from showering would be one thing but yeah i mean i'm just like you i'm just i just donk off so much time in my day anyway <laughs> well he he basically makes the um claim i don't know if it's uh true or not but he claims that because he's not showering all the time, his skin, uh, and maybe it's from this spray he applies really, his skin has a high level of nitric, nitric oxide on it. And he claims that mindfulness, which is something I talk about on this show a lot, this idea that you're kind of in a state of being really aware, being really present, he claims that when you're mindful, when you're very present, that somehow that is releasing extra amounts of uh, nitric oxide in your skin. And that, so this is basically the exact same thing as being mindful, which is, which really appealed to me. He claims that he's in a better mood now all the time because his skin is covered in this good bacteria. Right, which kind of answers the question I said before, which is, well, then, you know, if you're going to continue to shower, why would you still need the spray? Because he's saying, hey, even if you shower, you might want to buy the spray. And I guess that's it. He says that it's actually 
it's it's an actual mood booster and it makes him feel better and it's not the skipping of the showers but it's the the um uh, nitric oxide which would explain he says that um stress is the result of low levels of nitric oxide so if i'm showering all the time luke and I'm not using the spray, that would lead people to think that I would be a stress case. And that's not the case. So I don't, I don't, know, where, I don't know where that comes from. You're just um, washing off your body's natural stress reducer, yeah. which is stink. <laughs> right. And then I get stressed out that I, yeah. that I stink. You know, I said to Genevieve yesterday, I was, um, uh, I was, I, we have a little garage. This isn't really an update, but it's kind of new to us. I've always parked on the street, but we had this little. We have a little garage that we get along with our um, apartment, but it had been kind of filled with stuff, including an old couch that needed to be donated and stuff. And recently, I was able to kind of get rid of that couch, clean up the garage, and actually uh, make enough room in there for us to squeeze my little car right in there. So I'm, uh, I parked the car in this tiny little garage yesterday and then was uh, carrying you know too many bags of groceries. And Genevieve saw me put my keys in my mouth because I didn't mm-hmm. have a free hand. And Genevieve was like, don't. What are you doing? What are your keys in the mouth? That's so dirty. And I was kind of like, honestly, I understand that that's what your instinct should be but i am a guy who clearly does not let enough dirt into my life you know i use like you know that special windex surface spray on the counters and stovetop and in in kitchen table at least 17 times a day during my puttering like i am killing every piece of bacteria within you know a 10 mile radius of myself probably having a couple of germs come in via that that key that i popped on my mouth it's not the worst thing for my immune system to your point, this is what this David Whitlock guy says. Um, he says, uh, we're, we are convinced that the bacteria are just as important for the skin flora as they are for the intestinal flora. That's what I said before, kind of like macrobiotics for the mm-hmm. outside of your skin. Uh, he says they're essential for the skin ecosystem. Here in America, we are at war with the world of bacteria. Kids don't play outside anymore. Everyone carries around disinfectant spray with them. Skin conditions like acne have tripled over the last 30 years. And also the use of antibiotics here is a lot higher. People here get clean and sterile mixed up is what he mm-hmm. says. Now, listen, he might not know what he's talking about. We're not trying to do an ad for this thing. He could be completely wrong. He probably is. He'll probably be on Coast to Coast with George Norrie in a week. What I love about the the guests on Coast to Coast is they're always talking in such serious tones about something that's obviously bananas. Right. Except for when they do their their, uh, dream show. Right. Right. Or when they do their show about cryptozoology, the study (laughs) of Bigfoot. And they're just like... They'll, or they'll have like a, the world's leading remote viewer on or someone talking about ancient aliens. And they're just talking about this like completely cock stuff, but they're being really scientific about it. They often have British accents or they're from Australia. And you're listening and you're like, either you are just this or a really smart person, but you're insane. Or you are just realized that if you talk about this like it's a real thing, people will believe you and buy your little book or whatever. Mm-hmm. So short of saying this guy is totally right because who knows if he is i will say that it's an interesting idea i feel like we have so many more ailments and problems now than we than i remember there being when i was a kid and i can't help but think some of it might be that if you do disinfect everything if you take a lot of antibiotics for like if you kind of i do know that the human body seems to have a weird ability over the years to kind of bioregulate and to do what it needs to do and if we if like for instance hand sanitizer that was not a thing that anyone knew about when i was a kid and we climbed all over everything and we put all kinds of terrible stuff in our mouth and 
seemed like people were okay. And now you, it is true that, you know, we're much more aware of that kind of stuff and nervous about it. I don't, I wouldn't say people seem healthier to me now right. than they were. This is all super anecdotal. I mean, I don't know what the data really says, but my sense is there's probably something to the idea that putting your keys in your mouth, if that introduces a little bit of, of kind of healthful bacteria and healthful kind of flora into your life, it's probably okay. Yeah, I think Vives was especially worried because I had just dropped them in the sewer like yeah. moments uh, prior. You guys and I, have I didn't got even to get that open off. sewer looked at. I like it. I consider it a water feature. I consider it a <laughs> sewer feature. Uh, so, Meredith, I went to the website for this thing, Mother Dirt, the spray that this guy created. It's $49 for a 3.4 ounce bottle of it. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. You know... There were so many things about this product, so many claims that seemed dubious to me from the get-go, mm-hmm. just on their face. The biggest thing that that uh, tweaked my scientist skepticism brain is this person is trying to sell you something. And that should be red flag number one. That's not a salmon-colored flag. That's a red yep. flag. Unless he has a body of scientific evidence behind him... Uh, this is probably bullshit. Yes. And, and I, I did a little digging. So I went to the Mother Dirt website and their parent company is this quote unquote medical research place called AO Biome. And I went to their website site and there was a lot of very um, uplifting text, but there was not a lot of scientific content to any of it. So I well, and that sounds like maybe a biased research organization that maybe has a stake in selling bug spray. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know if I trust them. Now, the idea of of good bacteria is a fascinating one. Um, and, and Luke mentions gut bacteria. That's another thing. Um, but it's it's a field that's very much in its infancy. We don't know enough about it to use probiotics, prebiotics to really treat or change any kind of physiologic process quite yet. There's some beginnings of some of it, um, such as like for patients with C. diff and they get poop transplants. That's actually a thing. That's a a useful thing. I heard about that. Um, Because they're introducing healthy bacteria back into their gut after it's been totally destroyed by perhaps antibiotics and overgrowth of, of C. diff. So there's a few applications right now that we know can work, but as you know, there are people trying to sell you probiotics to cure depression and to cure like allergies and all this stuff. And we just don't know enough about that yet. It's very, very early in the research on this, um, in microbiome research. So don't let yourself get taken for a ride. It's not going to really hurt you probably, but it's a waste of money. We don't even know how much of this bacteria and what kind of bacteria we need to treat various things. So just don't bother with it yet. Mm -hmm. You know, eat a good diet and, and that's basically all you can do right now. And Luke takes a kernel of something that I think is pretty good, which is like the hand sanitizer stuff, the antibacterial hand sanitizer and how that is not a great thing because it destroys all that bacteria, which I think I agree with. And then he extrapolates it out to say, well, then this makes sense. We should never shower. And I'm going to go on the record and say anything that the mummy does is something that I'm going to avoid. (laughs) It's a very good life rule. (laughs) 
yeah, there's a middle ground, right? We don't have to disinfect everything we touch. It's impossible and it's impractical and it's probably bad for us in the long run. Uh, but I don't think never showering and spraying bacteria on yourself is the alternative. Um, so they start this whole discussion with the the example of the horses and how the horses roll in the dirt or whatever and, you know, <laughs> their skin achieves stasis or whatever. But my point for this is they still smell like horses. Well, and yeah, horses do a lot of things we shouldn't necessarily do. <laughs> yeah, they may be perfectly healthy, but they're st- still going to smell bad. And that's, uh, if you avoid showering, you're you're going to smell bad. And I do not believe this thing where the ammonia is the only thing that creates body odor and spraying the stuff on it is going to get rid of that. It just seems silly. And it also seems to be kind of a a pathetic excuse that somebody doesn't have enough time to shower. I mean, really? Yeah, exactly. Like they say the 12 years thing, right? Like uh, it, it's adding 12 years. To, it's not adding 12 <laughs> years. It's just shifting it to doing something else. Right, which is playing Monopoly on your iPad, usually. Yeah. <laughs> and then they get into the part about um, mindfulness, which I was not on board this train before. But then when, and I'm a big believer in mindfulness, but releasing nitric oxide and that's what's in this spray. And so if you're really stressed out, just use the spray and it'll do the same thing. I it this is all so silly to me. Isn't that the stuff they give you at the dentist? <laughs> no, that's nitrous, not nitric. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was I was under the assumption that they're talking about nitrous oxide and I was like, I don't think we should be working on making more of that coming out of our skin. <laughs> but I'll tell you what, I would be happy. <laughs> I guess it would relax us a lot. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I thought it was very funny that that Andrew said that, you know, he's essentially he's washing off his body's natural stress reducer by taking showers. <laughs> he showers so much. Yeah, his shower is his stress relief, but paradoxically it watches washes off his I don't know, can I call it his stress mucus? Ew. <laughs> oh gross. You know, I don't I don't think we need to Unless you work at a hospital, unless you're a surgeon, uh, you don't need to carry sanitizer. You don't need to use antibacterial soap at home. It's just creating superbugs. Mm-hmm. So just wash your hands well. Just scrub them for a while. You'll be good. And take a shower. Otherwise, like for this real. David Whitlock guy, maybe that date is going to be one of a very few dates that you have. <laughs> They went to great pains to say that he had a date. (laughs) Well, and if you look at pictures of him, then it starts to get doubtful that he would have a date. (laughs) He had a date once. Yeah, he he looks kind of like a crazy British scientist. (laughs) Yeah, he does. (laughs) All right, let's move on to our last clip. This is from July of 2015. And it's essentially Luke and Andrew discussing why Andrew's so grumpy. Our top story is that scientists with the Emmett Interdisciplinary Program in Environment and Research uh, Resources at Stanford University have been studying what makes people 
essentially ruminate on things for too long. They were studying brooding and why certain people have the tendency to brood, in particular, morbid rumination. Sound familiar there, Mr. No, Walsh? I'm sorry. I'm, I'm thinking about Facebook. What's that? <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is how they describe morbid rumination. It's when you can't stop chewing over the ways in which things are wrong with ourselves and our lives. I don't know. This broken record fretting is not healthy or helpful. It can be a precursor to depression. It is disproportionately common among city dwellers compared to people living outside of urban areas. No, I don't so, know. I'm not familiar with what that So this is like. what they did. They studied the area of the brain called the subgenual prefrontal cortex. That is where rumination tends to happen and uh and they figure this kind of morbid rumination in particular this is where the part of the brain that 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 it happens in so what they did was they got 38 uh, healthy adults together they had them complete a questionnaire about their normal level of morbid rumination and they checked the brain activity in this subgenual prefrontal cortex and they found that uh, you know there was a lot of blood for some of these people flowing to that area and then they had some of them walk along a highway, hectic multi-lane highway in Palo Alto, and then uh, this is for 90 minutes. And then they had the other group of uh, these folks walk along the leafy, beautiful, um, naturey part of the Stanford University campus. And as you might imagine, when everybody came back, they found that the people who had been out in nature there was a way less activity in their rumination center. So I say to you, Andrew, as soon as this show's over, it is time for you to walk to Runyon Canyon or some other naturey thing near you and take a walk. This is what you need, brah. The thing is, though, I, um, I like walking along a highway is not the same thing as like walking along Wilshire Boulevard like or or like in, mm. in the city like i get i get excited i love i love my walks in the city where things are are happening but i'm talking about you know on blocks you know what i mean like city blocks like when you get to those parts of the city where you're kind of in between kind of urban density and you know and highways and you're just kind of walking along long gross paths of concrete yeah that that sucks yeah but i never do that but i mean i i i i don't know they should they should have had somebody walk down you know um broadway avenue in seattle or something like that which to me like that fires all kinds of great uh places in my brain it might fire great places in your brain, but I think it fires different places in mm. your brain than if you're being if you're out in nature. Yeah, like, I mean that's the excitement. That's like the uh, now I'm just going to go freelance on this <laughs> as a I'm a noted brain doctor. Right. <laughs> Too bad they don't have doctors for <laughs> your mind. Um, I I think that like well I was in New York a couple weeks ago and I got into town and I, I was walking around Manhattan and I was just like excited and happy to be there because it's so energetic there's just so much going on but to me that's a really different experience and feeling than when I'm walking around in Fort Warden in Port Townsend and it's just like trees and wind and the ocean and I'm like I'm just just my experience you know is that that just it recalibrates it resets something 
in my uh, in my insides. That's really it. It almost feels, and I'm not like woo woo. I'm not into. I'm not particularly into spiritual stuff. And I think there is some kind of, and I think it could be probably explained um, through natural selection. There's some kind of. I think there's an evolutionary component to this. But I really feel like human beings, we need to be around and immersed to some degree in nature at least some of our life. Because, at least at some some times in our life, because I feel like. There's got to be some part of us that is not really ready for city life because I just don't think we've evolved fast enough. Like we learned how to build cities and buildings. We learned how to do that pretty quickly in our existence as a life form on this planet. But evolution takes way longer than that. And so I feel like when a lot of times – I know I sound like a off-brand Eddie Bauer catalog. But I just – like. It's called Land's I, End. I think, I think in, you know, in 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 twenty thousand years or something, I'm sure that we will be, we will actually have evolved to be more comfortable and for being mo- mostly contained and mostly climate controlled and mostly all of that stuff that we've been able to do. We've been able to tame nature, but I still think that we are pretty primal things at our core, just because we haven't been around long enough for that to be evolved out of us. Does that make any sense? Is that just crazy talk? Sort of. I mean, I'm not a huge... Like, I'm about 50-50 with you and your theories on evolution. Like, for starters, I'm a creationist. <laughs> right. So that's... Now, I mean, I, I, I don't... I mean, you I didn't think come I from no monkey? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah. I, under, I understand what you're saying. I don't know if I agree with it, but I'm not a, I'm not a, um, a, a scientist either. Um, but... I mean, my own personal experience, again, would say I'm still leaning a little bit more towards the the different strokes for different folks because, you know, when I lived in New Hampshire, I mean, you want to talk about a place that was just like filled with natural beauty. I mean, filled with natural beauty. And we lived in this small little – I drove you past my old house one time. You saw it and it was probably snowy when we were there um, because it was primary time. And, you know, we lived in this beautiful little house in this neighborhood that was uh, like – kind of catty corner to this park in Concord. And so if I wanted to walk, quote unquote, to town, I would walk like maybe a mile to like where the state house is and where a couple of bars are and stuff. It's a very small town. And that walk was very, I mean, I think it was very idyllic for a lot of my friends and the people who lived there. It was just like very, very beautiful. You're not passing. Yes, you're walking along a street, but a very, you know, you know, very relatively quiet street with just beautiful New England houses, often covered in snow and covered with trees. You can see the mountains in the distance, all this stuff. And I hated it. I, I drove as much as possible because that walk seemed to take forever for me because there was no visual stimulation that like really excited me. In once I moved to Seattle, I would walk the same distance twice or three times over to go to the grocery store because for me the walk went by so quickly because again like I love looking at people I love being in the hubbub of a city street and so walking became less of a chore to me once I was around kind of again hubbub I um I hear what you're saying and I and I know there are different strokes for different folks is a very real thing and I'm not saying every single person on the planet is wired the same way but I do think it maybe it's not a coincidence that you have by your own description you 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 tend to ruminate and also you hate walking in nature so is luke calling andrew more highly evolved than him because andrew likes cities i don't think that luke's logical processes extend out that far <laughs> <laughs>
He also thinks that these evolutionary changes are only going to take 20,000 years. I don't want to call him out on details, but evolution's a lot slower than that. Well, at least he's acknowledging the existence of evolution. And by saying that it'll be 20,000 years, that's a lot longer period of time than you know, he used to think that the earth had existed. So he's that's true. He's made some forward motion on his thinking as far as this goes. <laughs> this is progress. <laughs> I am totally fascinated by this whole idea of morbid rumination. And I think I'm self-diagnosing myself with that because I definitely have that tendency to just brood obsessively over things. Yeah, and actually Luke was just talking about this in a recent TV yeah. channel where he was talking about how he feels about sharks <laughs> and how he, he has these kind of an intrusive thoughts about sharks because mm-hmm. <laughs> they scare him so much and he can't get these thoughts out of his head. I I love it when he was giving the definition of this, when he was saying you can't stop chewing over the ways in which things are wrong with ourselves and our lives, and Andrew just starts laughing. <laughs> <laughs> It was just clearly like describing Andrew to a T. Mm -hmm. But I do have problems with this study, starting with the part where they said that they had 38 subjects. Um, And then when I went and I read the paper, they started with 38, but they had to eliminate seven of them because um, I think it was that they had too much movement during the CAT scans or something. That's what it seemed to be. And then they had to eliminate one other person for some reason. I forget. So this was essentially a study with 30 people in it. And was it half and half? I didn't read this one. Half and half. Um, Yes. Highway walking. I don't know how it. Yeah, they, they, it was 19 and 19. But then I don't know where the people that dropped out came from. So yeah, as somebody who designs studies, I would Never, ever, ever tell anyone to go ahead with a study that had 15 patients per group, unless we're talking about rats, Um, unless we're talking about bred animals uh, where you have to sacrifice them at the end. Those often have tiny numbers because they can, because they're genetically identical creatures and because we have ethical considerations and we don't want to kill as, you know, more animals than is necessary. Let's not kill rats willy nilly. No, let's not. If we're talking about human studies, 15 per group is not enough. No. And and for people who are um, who don't exactly understand why we do that, I have an excellent example of when I was in grad school and I worked in the statistical consulting clinic, which was a, a resource for uh, grad students in other departments who were, you know, working on their thesis or whatever, and they wanted some statistical support, they could come see us. Mm-hmm. And I had a woman come in once who was doing a social science study. It was something on like educational attitudes. She wanted to know if people would have different opinions based on what level of education they'd completed. But the problem was in her study, she had six people. I think she had two people who had an associate's degree, two people with a bachelor's, one with a master's, and one with a PhD. And I said mm-hmm. to her, you, you can't do anything because you can't take the responses of one person with a PhD and apply that to the entire population. That's just not reasonable. No. And so that applies also to these studies where you have 15 people. You're going to take 15 people and look at them and generalize to the entire population from their behavior. It's just not reasonable. 
I'm also lo- I'm looking at the paper now, and I have, I have quibbles with the statistical tests they chose. They chose tests that you would use if you had over 30 patients per group. There are specialized tests that we have when you have small groups, and they didn't use those. They're a lot less powerful when you use them for small groups. So, side note, <laughs> I don't like their stats either. <laughs> nope. But I, I really... I liked Andrew's pushback on this because he seemed to have some quibbles with the study design as well, because he's like, well, who in their right mind has a good time walking next to the highway? That's not the same as walking, you know, down a street in the downtown or in a great urban neighborhood, which he can find very stimulating and interesting. I loved it that he said he talked about living in nature in New Hampshire and how much he just hated it. (laughs) <laughs> he just wanted yes. to drive everywhere. Mm-hmm. Gosh, it's almost like this is a personal preference. Hmm. I don't know. Yeah, who likes walking by the highway? I mean, that's a scary thing to do. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, they could have, if they had had people walking around in an idyllic downtown scene, I bet you the difference wouldn't be that big. Yeah. I mean, it's not like there's nothing to the idea of getting out into nature. Luke very sort of clearly um, talks about how it it, it affects him and how it's a good thing. But um, I don't necessarily think that that you can generalize that to the entire population. Yeah, he I mean, he and Carrie moved out of Seattle to Port Townsend and then to Bellingham just for that exact reason, right to get away from the city. But it seems to really charge Andrew up. Yeah. I don't know. How do you feel about it? I mean, what's your preference? Uh, I'm a hermit. I don't go outside. I don't really care where I live. <laughs> I like being in, I, I like being close to things that are useful. Um, so I like to live city adjacent, but I like to have a nice kind of outdoor space that's my own. So like my backyard mm-hmm. or my front yard. I like those. And we've got a pretty nice garden in the front going, and I like to be out in that and weeding and trimming and things like that. That's fun. That's kind of a fun, but that's like puttering, you know? I I have fun doing that sort of stuff indoors, too. I like to walk around in parks and things like that. Um, But I did a ton of, like, real camping when I was a kid to where, you know, you drive the Jeep out into the middle of the woods and find a camp spot. Um, And I've had enough of that. (laughs) I don't want to do that anymore. That's too much nature. So there, I like kind of controlled nature where I don't, I'm, it's pretty sure I'm not going to get eaten by a bear. Right. Yeah. That's a good goal for all of us, I think. Yeah. <laughs> to not get eaten by a bear. I. What about you? This weekend, this past weekend was gorgeous. I mean, it was picture perfect here. And I looked at the weather report and I thought, I just want to stay inside. I think I have to come to terms with the fact that I'm pretty much an indoor cat. I just, <laughs> when I don't have to be at work, I would much rather just be at home and be working on my projects and yeah, be listening to TBTL, I guess. So I looked at the windows and I, I like driving around in my car when the weather's really nice with the window mm-hmm. down and <laughs> that's a different way to experience the outdoors. But I feel quite a lot of guilt that... um I'm not like super into getting outside. It, it's a big thing here in Minnesota because our winters are so disgusting. I mean, you came from all those Michigan winters. I'm sure people there feel the same oh, way. Oh, and I had the same guilt. As soon as it, st- it got nice out and I had indoor stuff to do, I felt this crushing 
guilt that I wasn't doing outside things, right. but I didn't want to or couldn't or whatever. And it's like, well, you know, everybody is saying we got to go out and enjoy, got to go out and enjoy while well, you can because it's not going to last. Yep. Um, and, and I feel very liberated from that in Dallas because the Dallas weather is crushingly nice all the time. Um, you know, the sunshine is relentless. Uh, and other than it being very hot, it's usually very, very nice. So I don't feel bad at all wasting a nice day inside anymore. Oh, that sounds so good. <laughs> it is. <laughs> and I like a good walk in nature every once in a while. And I sure. don't mind walking in the city environment. I would say I probably don't like walking by the highway that much, but nope. I don't know that I necessarily feel that recalibration in nature that Luke thinks is so important. I mean, I, maybe I'm just disconnected from nature. No, I think it's important to him, and that's a good thing for him to know, but he shouldn't He shouldn't generalize that out to everybody else. Yep. And probably part of the reason why he's always so desperate to disengage from the technology and mm-hmm. talking about being on the dock or looking out at the lake or any of that stuff is... is part of where his sort of um, internal struggles come from is that that does mean so much to him. And yet he's so tangled up in his technology. Yeah, I don't feel that. I don't feel that conflict. I usually have my phone with me at all times, but I use it like if I'm outdoors, especially if I'm like walking around somewhere new, I want that phone because I want to know where I am. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I want to use that map in case I get lost or in case I see something insane, I need to be able to call or, you know, I just I, I it's a safety feature for me. I don't feel like it's a distraction. I feel like it's a compliment. I know. Isn't it interesting how it's really like a relatively short time ago that we didn't have phones all the time. And I'm a really late adopter. I've only had a smartphone for two years now. And I can't imagine not having it at this point. But really, we went for thousands of years without the ability to instantly call somebody or take a picture or figure out where we were or any of that stuff. And we were fine. But now it seems to be such a such a part of of life that I feel like well, what would I do if I didn't have it? Yeah, and I choose to see it as an enhancement mm-hmm. rather than a detriment. It doesn't uh, it, it doesn't cause me to obsess over Facebook or Twitter or whatever like. <laughs> yeah. Like it does for Luke. <laughs> How many retweets our spoof got on Twitter? <laughs> I'm not on Twitter, so that's probably part of it. <laughs> well, I hope that Andrew can find his joy and his decompression in his his city walks because I think that's great. Yeah. And I think he knows himself enough to know that he it's he likes that and it's good for him and it's fine mm-hmm. that he's like that and Luke isn't. Yeah, I thought this was a, kind of an interesting clip to listen to because Luke was so positive that all Andrew needed to do was get out in, in nature. <laughs> and Andrew was just equally positive that that was not the solution for him. And so the two of them were just kind of gently butting heads on this and kind of refusing to uh, concede the point to the other one. Well, and the difference is that Andrew wasn't saying, no, Luke, you just need to go for a walk down the city streets, you know? <laughs> right. Which is, you know, emblematic of their personalities. Andrew was not trying to change Luke's uh, point of view here at all. He was just trying to defend himself. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. Poor guy. Mm-hmm. No wonder he has morbid rumination. <laughs> is that it for our clips? I think so. All right. It's time for housekeeping. Keep in mind that if you want to be a cool archivist like me and Bob Stein and Linda Hill and WK and Sarah Settlemeyer, 
you can contact us at littleredbandwagon at gmail.com. Drop Christy a line and she will assign you a week. And for every day that you submit, you're entered into our Wagon Full of Loot raffle contest. And if you win that, we draw a name every month. And one of us hosts puts together a uh, container full of fun goodies for you that we just kind of randomly decide. (laughs) It's a mystery. (laughs) Uh, check out our website for stickers. Uh, if you are shopping on Amazon, use our link. It's littleredbandwagon.com slash Amazon. It sends us a few pennies from your purchases, and it doesn't cost you anything else. And you can also donate if you feel so inclined at our website. Also, send us your throw-your-phone moments. Uh, you can email those to us or call us or text us. Absolutely. And again, uh, our website, littleredbandwagon.com. You can come see us on Facebook, uh, on our page, or or hanging around the Stens page up to no good, as usual. The show Twitter is at LRB Podcast. You can email us, again, littleredbandwagon at gmail.com. And we always love to get voicemails at 802-432-TBTL. That's 802-432-8285. We did it. We talked about science and there was no one to stop us. (laughs) Except for Eddie. Well, that's true, but he has (laughs) cow ears to eat. Yeah, if you heard some chewing in the background, that was Eddie eating a cow ear. (laughs) Sorry. I don't want to hear emails about that. That's okay. That is what Bobby calls audio spackle. That's right. (laughs) So, Meredith, why don't you get us out of here? Until next time, this is The Next Party. And we love you, Jen. Nailed it. Yes, science!